morning. <clears throat> Happy Sabbath to you. Nice to see you. Um, I want to thank you for coming to church. Is that all right? Yeah. Did you know that it's good for you to come to church? Yeah. Uh, it's good for you spiritually, right? Did you also know it's good for your immune system? Hmm? Yeah. If you stay away from other people too long, your immune system doesn't have to work very much. It's good for your immune system. Remember that. So nice to be with you today. Um, I I must admit, and um, you can see I'm not very well prepared when I come to preach because I don't know exactly what I'm going to say. Um, so I bring whatever I might use <laughs> when I come. But anyway, I am. I would like to touch on just a few different things with you um, today uh, as we are here together to study. And um, I would like to have a little prayer myself also here uh, before we begin. So if you would just bow your heads and I'm going to kneel and have a prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we want to thank you very much for our Savior and his love and his mighty power. And we're at praying today, Father, that through Christ, that we will be drawn closer to him and to thee, and that your word will become very precious to us, precious above all the things of this world. I pray that you'll be with each who are here to worship. Please guide my mind. And we pray that the Spirit of God will open up to us a clear understanding of our Lord and of his word, and that he will be here with us today, as has been promised in Revelation chapter 5, that he is sent forth into all the earth from the throne of God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Christianity and... Um, the world are much of the time directly opposite to one another. Right? Yeah. And um, sometimes they need to hear that. But I'm thinking now of a passage in Second Peter that talks about our time. And Peter says here in Second um, Peter chapter three, he says, "Knowing this first, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, "Where is the promise of his coming?" So when you hear people express doubt or denial about the second coming of Christ or its eminence and its nearness, we can see in those very words the prophetic fulfillment that he is coming soon. Let me read you something here. <clears throat> A spokesperson for the Vatican, the Roman Catholic Church, has officially announced that today that the second coming of Jesus the only Son of God may not happen after all. But urged followers to continue with their faith regardless of the news. Cardinal Giorgia Salvador told WWN that this year's 19 
181st anniversary is to be the Vatican's last in regards to waiting for the Lord to return to the earth. Now, quote, we just feel Jesus is not coming back by the looks of it, he said. It's been ages like he's probably flat out doing other really good things for people somewhere else. Uh, quite a fulfillment of prophecy, isn't it? <clears throat> and uh, especially who it's coming from. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, here we are, brothers and sisters. Um, a, f- a friend of mine last evening mentioned on the Great Controversy Book Club call that um, I believe there's 27 companies from the top 500 fortune companies who are now collaborating with the Pope on what they're calling the, the new reset. Uh, we So we can see things, uh, the new world order is hastening on a pace. And if there was ever a time when God's people needed to be in the mode of progress and advancement, it's now. Amen. Yeah, and action, it's now. Yeah. By the way, in general, many people today in the world are being manipulated by fear. If you are reading your Bible, you are not to be controlled by fear. Amen. Neither be afraid of their terror. Nuh-uh, no. If we are doing things out of fear, we better check where we're coming from. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Yeah. So I just want to spend just a few minutes today talking to you about health. I maybe have a little bit. There's a lot of things that are interesting, but I just want to share with you an idea that I think you will find to be somewhat interesting, and I will... Uh, be the first to concede to you that I am not uh, what would be considered any medical expert, but I believe what I'm going to tell you is the truth, all right? So I recently listened to a uh, Dr. Phil Collins, he's an Adventist brother, talk about the subject of intermittent fasting. Now, this really grabs my attention, and in just a few moments, I'm going to try and explain something to you here that I think you will find to be a benefit, Okay. So we all know that when you fast, you give the stomach a vacation so the stomach can be free of labor and not have to work, okay? Now here's what happens when the stomach is not digesting food and when the body is not assimilating food. The body actually shifts into another mode of operation and it begins the process of cleanse and rebuild, okay? This is why fasting, if it's properly done, can be about the quickest route to recovering your health that there is, all right? Or it's one thing that's, like, very effective, right? Now, there are people who are practicing what is known or called the practice of intermittent fasting, which simply means that you shorten up the amount of time in a day in which you eat your food, okay? Instead of maybe spanning your food eating over a 12-hour period, you would pull it back to a five- or six-hour period. And what this allows is the stomach to be empty for a longer period of time, which extends the amount of time in which the body can operate in the cleanse and repair mode, which is going to improve your health. Okay? Um, now, all of us, and, and I just brought this. I was trying to think of a way, to, and I thought, oh, this will kind of illustrate it. So I brought this. Um, all of us have a certain toxic load, a certain quantity of toxins in our body. Now, the theory I've heard or read is, is that if all the toxins that are locked in your tissues 
would be dumped out all at once, it would literally kill you. Because the toxin, the toxic load, your body, your elimination system could not handle it. I remember one time I made a, a glass of red beet juice for my father. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever drunk red beet juice or not, but if you drink it straight, you'll know it. My father, I made him a glass of red beet juice. He took a couple swallows. He set it down on the counter there in the kitchen, and he said, I just feel like I've been hit by a truck, and he meant it. Red beet juice starts rapidly detoxifying your body so fast. I mean, it really works fast. So when you drink it, you got to mix it with other juices and reduce the amount. I remember a lady when we lived in Tennessee, her husband called her one time, and he said, come home. He said, I think I'm going to die. And he had just drunk down a glass of red beet juice. He really thought he was going to die. He was just feeling absolutely terrible and horrible. So that red beet juice, when you drink it, it will really detoxify your body quickly. So here's the point. You can't detoxify your body too rapidly, but you want to increase that. Okay, you want to keep bringing it down. Now, a lot of people are running around with a full toxic load, and they've got a lot of health problems. All right? Now, the lower this toxic load is in your body as per percentage, the healthier you're going to be. The better your brain's going to function, the better your body's going to function. Okay? So the goal with your daily habits is to week, daily and weekly bring down this toxic load so that your body is in a healthier condition. Okay. In fact, this Dr. Phil Collins said if you'll do a three or four day fast, and which is fine. I don't really recommend doing that right off. I think you should do some, uh, you know, you should prepare for that over a period of time. But he says if you will do a three or four day fast, um, he says it will um, completely reboot your immune system. Okay. Now, one thing he explained was this: is they took two groups of mice, and uh, as I remember him explaining it, basically it was this: two groups of mice. Both groups were fed the same diet. It was an unhealthy diet, and we're not advocating an unhealthy diet, but they didn't feed them a healthy diet. It was a diet of 60% fat, okay? The one group were allowed to eat throughout the entirety of the day or maybe whenever they wanted. The other group were, were restricted to eating only uh, within a six-hour window of time. The group that ate throughout the entirety of the day developed a lot of uh, problems, atherosclerosis, heart trouble, uh, tendencies towards diabetes, on and on. The other group that only ate within the six-hour window every day, they actually remained healthy, lean, and strong. Okay? So you're simply extending the amount of time in which the stomach is empty. Now, you have to take these principles and apply them to your own life. You see what I'm saying? Now, some people, they're like, oh, you know, and don't get me wrong, or maybe not wrong, But I will say to you this, I do not believe that we should impose on a child the mandate that they got to eat only twice a day. That's my opinion. I'm simply giving you my opinion. I think a child should be allowed to eat three times a day. But I think for many of us adults, two meals a day would be just fine, okay? In fact, uh, I believe a lot of us, if we would take one of those meals and cut it in half and eat the other meal a normal quantity, the other meal half as much, you're going to get even more rapid uh, uh, improvement there. And, um, you know, uh, in the, I'm thinking now of Ecclesiastes chapter 10. It says, Woe to thee, O land, when thy king is a child and thy princes eat in the morning. Have you ever read it? Okay. Ellen White, I believe, makes a comment on that in the 7A of the commentary where she says that the Hebrews ate two meals a day and their larger meal was around the middle of the day. She also says that Solomon and his courtiers understood that if they would begin the day in feasting, that it would unfit them for their day's duties. All right? Now, you're going to just have to apply these things how you see fit. Personally, I don't eat when I first get up in the morning. It's three to four hours typically till I eat. Um, that's what I find preferable. 
But take these ideas. I would really encourage you to consider this idea of intermittent fasting. Uh, You might want to do however you want to do it. You might say, I'm going to do it two days a week, three days a week, or I'm going to fast 24 hours a couple times a week, however you're going to do it. But I would highly urge upon you the uh, practice of of intermittent fasting. So here's what's going to happen. The the more you you treat your body properly, the more you're going to bring down this toxic load in your body, the more your energy is going to step up, the more your clarity of thinking is going to be, the better and healthier your body is going to be. See that? So actually by self-denial and self-discipline, you can actually dramatically improve your health over a period of weeks and months until you get down to the point where you're really sailing. Everybody's going to have a toxic load in their body all the time because your body's constantly metabolizing and processing things. But if you, the further you can bring it down, the better your performance is going to be and your health is going to be. And brothers and sisters, we're going to need every bit of quality health we can obtain and in these last days. You realize that? Uh, Daniel is our inspiration. He ate a vegetarian diet. And uh, he was... Uh, Really quite a man. So anyway, I have a couple little papers on fasting. If anybody like copies of them, I'll give them to you. But I think it's something we need to encourage. Uh, by the way, the Bible talks about 70 times uh, or mentions fasting at least 70 times. And it especially mentions it in the context of the last days. That we are to do that. Uh, the story, Many of the stories in the Bible, such as the story of Esther, uh, they fasted for three days. They were under a tremendous pressure at that time. God heard their humbling of soul and their prayers, and he answered their prayers. There is no doubt about it that fasting actually enhances spiritual life, and a healthier body actually enhances spiritual life. I've got it in my notes here. I don't know that I'm going to uh, flip through it, but I have a statement right here, uh, up here, which says very explicitly in the fifth volume of the testimonies that eating healthy food makes you more connected with the Holy Spirit. And there's also a statement in the book, Desire of Ages. It's maybe page 277. I've got it right here if anybody wants the the quote. It also says that when the disciples did not discern the presence of the Holy Spirit, it says that at that time it would be more fitting for them to fast. In other words, a cleaner body actually enhances spirituality and a better connection with the Holy Spirit. Right? So... uh, it's time for improvement, right? So anyway, I hope that will inspire you. And I got some uh, copies here on fasting. Now, <clears throat> here's a little thought that I just want to talk to you about. <clears throat> or it's a big thought. But I'll spend a little bit of time on it. All right? And that is that we are now coming to the last days, and God's people are going to be in this world in the minority. You understand that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. In fact, not only are we going to be in the minority, we are going to be in the hated minority because Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 says the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. And Christ himself specifically said, ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. So if if someone's purpose in life is that you want applause and favor from the world. You can't have that, and Jesus both. If you're going to follow Jesus, you will be hated by the world. Okay? One thing we need to remember, though, and that is, is that truth 
always wins. Truth always wins. There's a statement in the book, Education, page 108. It says, it, it says this, basically it says this, it is only in appearance that evil wins. Um, excuse me. Oh, yes, only in appearance that evil wins. All right. In fact, I didn't have the book here. Let me, let me read this to you. And then I want to elucidate on this just a little bit because this is a concept I think it's very important. Yeah, it is in appearance, not in reality, it says. So it's in appearance and not in reality that evil succeeds. Just remember that. When Joseph's brothers sent him and sold him off into Egypt, it appeared as if they won. But Joseph won because he stayed with God. Yeah. I like the story of, and he's, the man is quoted in the book, Great Controversy. His name's not given there. Uh, But the story of uh, Christopher Vailton, who before he was burned at the stake, maybe right around the time of the uh, St. Bartholomew massacre, he was urged to recant and give up his faith. And he said to his persecutors, he said, my faith has a confidence in God that resists all the powers of hell. They burned him anyway. And I'll just, and not, I do not want to disrespect the pulpit in any way. I don't think I am right now, but I will tell you briefly what they did to the man. And when they did this to the man, his eyes remained calm and at peace, they pulled out his tongue, drove a hole through it. They cut a slit in his cheek, pulled the tongue back through the cheek, and nailed it to a post. And they burned him at the stake that way. It's horrendous, the tortures that have been in it. But all that time, his eyes remained calm and at peace. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. The story of Esther and Mordecai... And Haman is a story that we need to keep in mind in these last days because all the attacks of God's enemies are going to recoil back on themselves. Yeah, some of us, they may torture. Some of us, they may martyr. Some of us, they may send off to exile or to prison or whatever they may do to us. But in the end, good will triumph and evil will be completely defeated. We must remember that. Now, there is going to be a group of people that they will go after them in the last days, but they will not get them, and that is a group of people who will be translated in the last days. Okay? So the very thing that Haman tried to do to Mordecai was done to himself. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So may God help us to hold on to the principles of truth and to hold on to the three angels' messages, unpopular though it be, and to stick with Christ. Um, quite a few years ago, there was a mission, an Adventist mission that was established in Colombia, the country of Colombia. It was a school. And when they drilled for water, they got water and they got a good supply of water. Uh, there was a uh, man who lived near there who had tried for years to get water on his property and could not get water at all. And because of this, 
he was very angry at the Adventists. And he was also a drunk. He would drink a lot. And one day when he heard the Adventist singing in the property next to him, and then he heard the singing coming closer, and it happened to be his wife who was coming home, and he was so outraged, probably drunken at that time or whatever, but he was so outraged, they took his machete and he threw it at his wife, and she was just barely able to dodge the machete, and and, uh, she didn't get hurt. This man finally came to the point where he was going to get even. So what he decided he was going to do is poison the whole group of Adventists. So his plan was is to buy, go to town and buy a bottle of serious poison, and then he was going to dump it down the well. And when these, during the night and when these Adventists began using the water, drinking the water, they would all die. And so he went to town. He bought this bottle of poison. And so no one would know where it was at. He hid it under the mattress under his bed. And then he decided on a time in which he would um, annihilate the neighbors. And, but before that, he was going to nerve himself up. So he went to town and had a good time getting all drunk. And when he came home, his wife heard him coming, and he was very drunk, and she knew that he would be very hard to deal with. And he walked into the house, and he demanded more liquor. And so he made her go after it. She ran all around the house. She couldn't find it. She had a very hard time. Finally, she came back with a glass full of liquid, and he drank it all the way down. And then he said, wife, he said, where did you get this bottle? He, she said, well, the only thing I could find in the house was this bottle, this bottle underneath your bed. He said, wife, he said, you've just poisoned me. So the only people that could help were the Adventists next door. They got a pickup truck. They put him in the truck. And the wife and one of the missionaries and someone's driving, they were with him and when they got close to town, close to the hospital, the man turned his eyes and looked at the missionary, and the missionary bent down, and the man spoke in his ear, and then after that, he died right there before they could get to the hospital. And the wife said to the missionary, she said, what did he say? And here were his last words. He said this, God is just. God is just. And we must remember that in these last days, It is only in appearance that evil will triumph, not in reality. Okay? So the three angels' messages are truth. God has given us these messages. They are the final messages of warning. The Sabbath is truth. The intercession of Christ is truth. God has given us as Seventh-day Adventists many truths. And we must remember that we are to stand like Daniel and John and Luther and all the others who have given us such a tremendous example for our time in this last generation, and we are not to be manipulated by fear. Many people today are being controlled by fear. We must rise above it and have faith in God. Okay? Um, If you'll take your Bibles, I want to look at a few verses in Peter, and then I want to go and take a look at the subject of the intercession of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. If you would go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I want to specifically find a, or observe a word rather, that is in my version. I'm using the regular King James Bible, just so you know. So in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter, verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Peter says this. He says that the trial of your faith 
being much more precious than of gold that perisheth might be, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So I just want to make an observation here. Peter says that the trial of our faith is much more precious than what? Gold, okay? So when you're tried, you're tested, you're going through duress, hard times, and Peter says this experience that comes from this is more precious than gold than gold or wealth. Okay? Because God's actually using these things to transform us into the character of Christ. Amen. Now, if you go to the same book, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 19, he says this. Well, he says, um, it's probably verse 18, maybe it says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but, but, he says, but with the what? With the what? Precious blood of Christ. Okay? So the trial of your faith is precious. The blood of Christ, he says, is precious. Same book, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, he says, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, so rejected by men, but chosen of God and what? What's the word? Precious. Here again, Christ is being described as a stone, symbolically, and he's precious. Um. And then verse 6, wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, elect, what? What's the word? Precious. Precious. And he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And then in verse 7, it says, unto you therefore which believe he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient. Very clearly here, if we disobey Christ, he is not precious to us. If we disobey Christ, he is not precious to us. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed. Okay? Now, go to Second Peter chapter 1. Here again you have... Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like what? Precious faith with us. So the faith is precious. The trial is precious. Our Lord is precious. His blood is precious. And then look at verse 4. It's one you know. He says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. These promises are precious. That by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. That is, you are partakers of the character of Christ. That is, you are partakers of the Holy Spirit. So by these promises, we are made partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I like it. I really like it. 
Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Don't ever forget that. Evil will lose. You know, Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 summarizes the whole history of the world, and he says this. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall rise out of the earth. The four kings, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Rome. He sweeps the whole history of the world. He says, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Yeah. These shall, Revelation is it, uh, 17. These shall make war with the Lamb. And the Lamb, talking about God's enemies. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he, the, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Yeah. So, the trial of our faith is precious. Our Lord is precious. His blood is precious. His promises are precious. And by these precious promises, we are made partakers of the divine nature. We should be really enthusiastic about reading and meditating upon the Bible. Because it's by these promises that we are made partakers of the divine nature. And God said in the book of Isaiah, I will make a man more precious than fine gold even in the, in the golden wedge of Ophir. Now, Paul, you might say, he didn't use the word precious, but he's talking about the same thing. He says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift, his unspeakable gift, which is Christ, which means to us eternal life. It's unspeakably precious, okay? And brothers and sisters, the Sabbath and all of God's commandments and his truth is going to be so precious to God's people in the time of the end that they will hold them paramount above anything in this world. Yep. So when the devil comes at you, give him the word of God. I really like this story. I was... Many years ago, I heard a lady and her husband. Her husband was a pastor. They say the average career for pastors is seven years. It's not a particularly easy job. But the husband said to the wife one, on one occasion, he said, you know what? They were having a very hard time. He said, not only am I about ready to walk away from my ministry, he said, but I'm just about ready to give up on God. You know what the wife did? She looked right back at her husband, and she said, you know what? She said, I've got enough faith for both of us, and God is going to help us through this problem. And he did. You see, when the world comes, or when the devil comes at us with opposition, we've got to come right back. Come right back. We are to gather warmth from the coldness of others, courage from their cowardice, and loyalty from their treason. Okay? That's something to think about. Now, just a little bit. I know this is a few different things today, but I really would like to talk to you about the intercession of Christ today, okay? So we have this precious Savior in heaven. His blood is precious, 
And not only is his blood precious, it is powerful, friends. Do you realize that because of the blood of Christ, Satan will be eternally defeated? Look, God and the principles of truth are paramount in their power. But let me just, and you already understand this, but sin is also a very powerful principle. And if it was not for Christ, you and I would be held helpless. Realize that sin is a very powerful principle, but through the cross of Christ, the powers of hell will be defeated. Colossians chapter 2, it says about Christ on the cross, it says, having spoiled principalities and powers. Spoiled is military language. That means he conquered them. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. In other words, Christ, before the entire universe, died on the cross. He gained the victory over Satan, and we are to um, hold on to his blood, which will give us the victory. Remember when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Okay, in uh, of course, in olden times, there was usually or many times there was a wall around a city. And at the gate of the city uh, where you entered in, that was where the city business was transacted. That was where courts were convened. That's where business was held. And that's basically where the city was run from. Okay, so the gates represent the place of position and authority and so forth. And when Christ said Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He was saying that all the plans and artillery and machinations of hell will be powerless to overthrow my church because it is built upon me. Right? Upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When you go back to Isaiah chapter 28, it talks about God's people who are to press the battle to the gates. That is, they've been besieged in their city. They go out of their city, chase the enemy back to his own city, and they press the battle back to the gates of the very enemy that came after them, and they get the victory. All right? So these are facts that we need to keep in mind. Now, when you look at uh, many things in the Bible talk about the uh, ministry of Christ, but I'd like to just maybe in the few moments that we have kind of uh, come off here now from Revelation chapter 5, all right? And I want to take a look at the ministry of Christ from that perspective. So Revelation chapter 5, John says, And I beheld, lo, in the midst of the throne and the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So John sees in heaven a throne. He sees... The lamb, which we know is a symbol of Christ, and he sees the seven spirits of God, which are sent forth into all the earth. Now, this is a very interesting text because what it's showing you is that Christ positioned in the sanctuary in heaven at the throne of God sends forth the Holy Spirit who is sent forth into all the earth. In other words, the Holy Spirit actually connects heaven with earth. Okay? He's omnipresent. No big deal. For him, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's like no, no big deal. Now, in this text, it's saying that the lamb, the lamb has 
seven horns, and we know seven is symbolically a complete number. In other words, this lamb has all power. This lamb has been slain for you and I, and now, see, before Jesus died, you you, you understand this, but Jesus was, before he came to this earth, all-powerful as creator, right? He condescended, became a man, came in human flesh, died on the cross, and now his omnipotence now has a new dimension, and he is now all-powerful as Savior also, okay? This should really encourage us. Look, it says he has seven eyes. That means he knows everything. Hebrews 4 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He knows all about you. He knows all about you. So you can talk to him, and he will hear, and he will understand everything. Isn't that comforting? Not only does he know all about you, he's got all power. All right? And he's running us through a race in this world, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So he's running us, we're running this race for the throne of God in this life. It is a battle and a march. It does take effort. Fight the good fight of faith. Don't stop fighting it, okay? So Christ is shown here as a lamb who knows everything and has all power. This is his mediatorial, uh, his mediatorial power, okay? Now, in the book, Great Controversy here, page 488 and 489, I'll read just briefly. The subject of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. Maybe I can just, maybe, I don't want to use a trite illustration, but let me maybe just illustrate it this way. Let's say, um, we might all dream of this, but Let's say you have a relative that died and they left you an inheritance, okay? And they just simply passed their checkbook over to you. And you thought it said you inherited $100. And it was really $100,000. And so all you ever spent out of the account was $100. You get the point, right? Look. If we have a limited idea of what Jesus has to offer us, we are going to have a limited faith, and it's going to greatly influence our, our experience. Do you follow me? This is why Bible study is so important, because the Spirit of God will illuminate our minds as to Christ, the reality of what he wants to give us, and He will. the, the more our minds and souls are open to him, the more he will lavish upon us spiritual blessings. Okay? So it says that the, that the intercession of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary should be clearly understood, the subject of the sanctuary, rather, and the investigative judgment should be clearly understood by the people of God. All need a knowledge for themselves of the position and work of their great high priest. Otherwise, it will be impossible for them to exercise the faith which is essential at this time. 
Okay? Here's one more. I'll just read a little bit. Next page. The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Okay? So I'm going to say it again. The intercession of Christ in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. In other words, Jesus not only had to die for us, he now now must intercede for us. All right? Any Christian who tells you that on the cross everything was done is not is misinformed you can plainly take them to the book of hebrews even just one verse hebrews 7:25 that says wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto god by him seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them this very plainly indicates the fact that our salvation is contingent upon the intercession of christ okay so he's able to save those um, who are come to him to the uttermost. By the way, back just back to the illustration. If you think you inherited a hundred dollars and you really inherited a hundred thousand, you're really you're really short, aren't you? You're really short. Um, maybe we need to reexamine the Word of God as Christians and realize better what Jesus has done for us and is doing for us, and what he's offering for us. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that he is offering to Laodicea especially for them to sit with him on his throne? I mean, not that we should be aspiring per se for preeminence, but look, God loves us. And he wants to take our sinful character and transform it into the character of Christ. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Okay. Recently I was going through uh, 2 um, Corinthians chapter 12. I really like this. So Paul had some kind of a problem. He said, Lord, please take it away. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. He said, please, Lord, take this away. And Jesus said, "Uh uh-uh. He said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made what? Exactly. My strength is perfect in weakness. Now, did he say, only if your weakness is partial is my strength perfect? No. This promise applies to any soul, no matter how weak they are. My strength is is my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Yeah, so pretty exciting. Um, I think I better wrap it up here fairly soon. I, we could spend more time here than be proper for some people. But let me just, I want you to think about something here kind of briefly. <clears throat> um. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it says this lamb has seven horns, seven eyes, all right, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. You know, brothers and sisters, we need to be praying more. Wouldn't it be really good if often through the day when we talk to someone or see someone that we would send up a prayer and plead with God that he will save that person? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you realize 
that God needs our prayers in order to accomplish things in this world? We are, Samuel told the Israelites, he says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord and not praying for you. So it's actually a sin to neglect prayer. We should be praying that God will hold back the four winds. We should be praying that God will save souls. We should be praying, right? So the text we're looking at here talks about the throne of God, all right? If you you ever get time, look up on YouTube. There is a... um, Presentation on YouTube by Robert Gentry called The Center of the Universe. Have you seen it? Yeah. Very interesting. He proves from astronomy. By the way, it's biblical that we should be studying astronomy. Do you know that? It's actually biblical. We are, um, yeah, day unto day utter speech and night unto night show with knowledge. Anyway, there's that's biblical. But anyway, he shows in his video that there is a center to the universe simply by the color patterns and the formations that are out there. His son on the video mentioned that they think there's about 300 billion galaxies out there. In our galaxy, they say it would take 100,000 years at the speed of light to travel across our one galaxy, the Milky Way. Why would the creator of the universe consider you and I precious when we've caused him so much trouble? Why is that? That is love. That is a love that we will never be able to fully uh, wrap our minds around. Robert Gentry on the video presents the thought that this world in relative proximity to all the rest of the universe is pretty close to the throne of God. Okay? Now, I'm just going to put some stuff out. You know, this is, um, in the book of Job, it says that God covers his throne with a cloud, right? And I've heard it sometime in the past that they say, actually, when they're looking up through Orion, they can only penetrate so far. This is a great corridor up in the heavens. They can only penetrate so far, and then there's kind of a darkness there. They can't go beyond it. We do know explicitly from the spirit of prophecy that when Christ, well, that when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven, it will come down through Orion. So we can obviously conclude that when Christ comes down from heaven to get us the second coming here very soon, he's going to come down through Orion. All right. Now, this is this is kind of fun. And I've maybe already mentioned some numbers to you, but I just want you to think about this just a little bit. If you travel at the speed of light, you would go around this world, all the way around this world, 35 times in five seconds. 35 times in five seconds, traveling at the speed of light. Okay? If you travel at the speed of light, it would take you 1,369 years to get to Orion, which is about 71,000 weeks. Okay? We don't know where heaven is, but we do know it's somewhere beyond Orion. And in early book, early writings, it tells us we're going to get to heaven in one week. So based on that, just figuring up to Orion, we will be traveling at least 71,000 times faster than the speed of light.
You realize that's vacation mode? If you just play with some numbers, when you go to Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel told Daniel, he said, when you first started praying, I was sent forth and now I'm here. If he came in 10 minutes, he would have been traveling over a million times faster than the speed of light. Yeah, we have a mighty God. He knows everything. We can trust everything with him. Okay? We need to come boldly to the throne of grace as much as we can for all kinds of things. We can pray for wisdom. We can pray for help. Okay? Someone sent to me on a text recently a quote, and I liked it so much, I thought, this is so good. Okay? And it's from the book, Our High Calling, page uh, 120, and it says this. It says, if we would educate our souls to have more faith, more love, a more perfect trust in our Heavenly Father, we would have more peace and happiness as we pass through the conflicts of this life. The Lord is not pleased to have us worry and fret ourselves out of the arms of Jesus. He is the only source of every grace, the fulfillment of every promise, the realization of every blessing. Our journey would indeed be lonely were it not for Jesus. I will not leave you comfortless, he says to us. Let us cherish his words, believe his promises, repeat them by day, and meditate upon them in the night season and be happy. I love it. I love what Peter says about being happy. I've been probably a little negligent on that. So anyway, so we need to be praying for other people. Back in the time of the uh, Revolutionary War, there was a man named Pastor Peter Miller who had an acquaintance whose name was Whitman. At one time, they both went to church together. During the revolution, this Pastor Peter Miller was actually a seventh day. He was a Sabbath keeper. Okay. And um, this Mr. Whitman was, you could easily say, an avowed enemy of Mr. Pastor Peter Miller. Every chance he got, he would put him down. He literally even spit in his face on a number of occasions. He was an absolute enemy of this Pastor Miller, this Mr. Whitman. He had information about the um, army, the, the United States Army. And on one occasion, he decided he was going to try and get gain for himself, and he would betray the Americans to the British. So he went over the, into the British uh, Army, and the British captain was so disgusted that a man would come to be traitor to his own people, he sent him back over to his own side. When he came back over to his own side, he was found. He was arrested for treason. They found out what he had been doing. And they put him in uh, jail. Well, he was up to be executed. Okay. This pastor, Peter Miller, heard that his enemy was to be executed. And so he traveled, evidently on foot, to meet George Washington. And he made this most eloquent plea that George Washington would forgive this man for being a traitor to the 
people on the American side. And all the the officers standing around thought for sure, because Washington had kind of a soft heart, that he would forgive this Whitman. And Washington said, no, he said, I am sorry. He said, I cannot forgive him. You know, this is very serious. He said, I would like to forgive your friend, but I cannot do that. And Pastor Peter Miller put his hands up in the air. He said, my friend? He said, this man is my most avowed enemy. He said, if he was my friend, I might not have bothered you, but he is my most avowed enemy. And the Bible says that we should pray for our enemies. So I'm coming to intercede with you. And Pastor Peter Miller made quite an impression because he was standing there in plain clothes, a long white beard, white hair. And when he made this impassioned plea, when Peter Miller made this impassioned plea for Whitmer, Washington broke and he got tears in his eyes. He said, okay, he said, I will forgive the man. He says, but what I want you to do is he said, I want you to take the letter of pardon and take it to the place where he is at. Pastor Peter Miller had to march through the night for 20 miles to get to the place of execution. When he got there in the morning, they had Whitman already on the scaffold, and they were just about ready to execute him, and he was at that time trying to make peace. And when he saw Pastor Peter Miller, he thought, he's just simply coming here to watch me die. And then he said, he did the best he could. He said, please forgive me for all the wrongs that I've done to you. And then the the note of pardon was handed to one of the officers, and they said, look, you've been completely pardoned, completely pardoned. Brothers and sisters, you know what? We need more love. We need more faith. We need to be going to the throne of grace, and we need to be pleading with God for our own souls, for the souls of our family. Um, I think I've said enough, but you know what? We can look at history. We can look at even everyday life now, and we can see mighty answers to prayer. So may God help us be a praying people. May the Lord bless you um, as we um, keep the remainder of the Sabbath.